Now the point in what we, were, we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even when the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of God for the people of God. a quick starting notes. If, if you didn't pick up on it, when it says in 8.5 that, that there's this tent, it's a shadow of something to come. And then in all of 9, reading all of that stuff about a tent and, and lampstands and things, that, that's what that's referring to in 8.5 is all of those instructions that we later read. And that, that's going to fit into this. But if that wasn't apparent in the reading of the, of the passage, I just want to point that out. So... This is a turning point. It's a, it's a real tipping point in the book of Hebrews. It's the tipping point. Uh, so this week I want to spend the first part 
of this sermon just recapping things in Hebrews. Uh, I hope that we can walk away first and foremost with an understanding that God has always been merciful to humans. And that's been clear through the first more than half of Hebrews. And then we're going to look at the fall of Adam and Eve and how that altered human life down through generations and how we inherited uh, the way that that messes up our desires and how that affects our relationship to God. And then we're going to look at how Christ, uh, in Christ, God remains merciful, but he also becomes the human who puts back together uh, what humans uh, disordered. So most of Hebrews, I've been saying this throughout, is, uh, is resetting our story. Who is God and, and who are God's people? Who are we as God's people? And the book of Hebrews, if you've been around, began by referencing a few psalms to remind us that Christ is forever. He was there in the beginning over all of creation. And then Hebrews 2 goes on and it uses Psalm 8 as this lens to show how Christ, who was over all of creation, went from this grand throne over all of the universe, plunging down into our little earthly world. Uh, to walk like us and talk like us and know everything about our existence as humans. And then Hebrews 3 and 4 harkens back to this story where the Israelites were rebelling in the wilderness, where God's people wanted to trade his promises for these feeble things that they knew of the world. God's people rebel, yet he hangs on to them. That's what we learned from Hebrews 3 through 4. And then recently in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, We've had this peculiar character named Melchizedek pointing to the fact that Christ is something different than all the pastors and priests and prophets and kings of human history. He's a different kind of priest king, and his kingdom is more broad and more deep, and and really it's complete. Hebrews wants to cement all of these things in our minds, that God's relationship with his people is constant because of God. God never changes. He's always faithful. Yet our ability to keep up with that relationship is undermined by our human frailty. That's what Hebrews is telling us through these different stories. It's the same theme. So I want to make sure that that's understood here before we move on. Uh, Think about this, whether you've ever heard Christianity narrated this way. God created the world. Adam and Eve corrupted it. God tried to fix it with a flood, but that didn't work. So God tried to fix it through Abraham and his offspring, but that that didn't really work. And then God decided, well, maybe I'll fix it with the law of Moses and the sacrifice system, that that didn't work. So then he sent Christ, and, and that he finally got an idea that worked. That's a pretty common narration of how we understand the Bible. And there is some internal logic to it, uh, but it's wrong. That's not how we read the Bible. That that way of reading the Bible is actually a pretty new invention uh, that sort of loses the forest for the trees. For most centuries, in most geographies, Christians have understood the Bible as one story of God and his people. Do any of you, I don't know if any of you know the Bible Project. Does anyone know what the Bible Project is here? Okay, all right. Uh, You should check it out. 
the Bible Project has these animated summaries of Bible books. You can find it on YouTube or they have a website. And they also have a, a podcast if you really want to nerd out and they kind of break down the animations and the theology behind them. And their tagline is, the Bible Project exists to help people experience the Bible as one unified story that leads to Jesus. And that's how we read scripture. One unified story that leads to Jesus. I was reading Leviticus this week for fun. And near the end, God tells the Israelites that if, if they're hostile to him, if they're hostile towards God, he's going to discipline them. And then it says, if they're still hostile, he's going to discipline them again. And then it says, if they're still hostile, he's going to destroy their idols. And you keep waiting for the line where it says, and if you're still hostile, I'm going to walk away from you and destroy you. But that's not what it says. Even in Leviticus, this book that we think of as as all the laws, it says, if you are hostile towards me, I will keep my promises toward, to you still. That reminded me of this, uh, this scene from The Office. Some of the later seasons. Joe Bennett, CEO of Sabre or Sabre, is with Michael Scott, the regional manager of the Scranton branch. And they're trying to figure out who's leaking corporate information from Michael's branch to the press. And about halfway through the episode, Michael figures out who is doing it. And, and in his mercy, he can't punish the person. The ever affectionate employer to his employees suggests this to the CEO of the company as the punishment. You know what I think we should do? We make them come to work. And we work them. And we make them sit next to all the people. And we pay them. But we make them feel like they did something really wrong. The question I have, do we give them a Christmas bonus? I say yes. It's Christmas, but right after that, they're right back in the thick of it. God's tone is firm and it's instructive, but his actions are always merciful. Always more merciful than humans deserve. His character never changes. Humans are always the variable in the rift between God and people. Heaven and earth There's a rift there. It's massive. Our experience of God's presence is distant in many ways. God offers his people throughout all of the Bible mercy and relief from that over and over. But in order for that that rift to be brought back together, the one who caused it needs to be the one responsible for repairing it. Humanity is the one responsible for repairing that rift. The human side needs to be brought back to God. He is ever merciful. That's what we see all through the Old Testament, and that's what Hebrews is just reminding us over and over and over again. That's what fills out Hebrews 1 through 7. That Christ is always compared to these other parts of creation, but noted as fuller, more perfect, more powerful, more effective. He's the most powerful king. He's the perfect child. He's greater than the angels. He's more effective than the law. He's a more integral leader than Moses. He's a better resting place than the promised land. And he's a better and more mysteriously powerful priest king than especially the Levites, but even Melchizedek. And his promises are perfect. 
because he's God. And his sacrifices reconcile God to humanity because he's human. He is God, and he's better than any finite sacrifice any human priest could ever offer to reconcile God and his people. So now, in Hebrews 8, we're halfway through the sermon. We're, we're over halfway, and, and Hebrews is pivoting. The first half of the book looked back to confirm that we understand history, the story that all humans are born into and are affected by. And from here onward, Hebrews is going to point to the future. We're still going to get lots of Old Testament references and stories, but now they're, they're pointing us toward life in light of Christ. In chapter 8, in the Greek, it literally begins, now we're to the main point. The middle portion of chapter 8 is quoting Jeremiah 31, which is what we call the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is when God promises that after generations of the mercy we've just been talking about, forgiveness for wayward humans, that God will now also do the work of restoring the human side of the breach. He's always, always delayed the debt humans have accrued. He's overlooked the expensive cracks in the covenant that we've caused. But now he's also going to work through the human side. His forgiveness has always been there, and it's now complete because he's going to pay the debt. In verse 8-5, which I mentioned at the beginning, when it talks about a pattern or a shadow, it's referring to God's people worshiping him while wandering in the wilderness. There were these particular things that Israel did when they were in the wilderness. They would worship through these liturgies, and these liturgies help them see themselves, their, their genuine state, and then God, who he really is. And then they'd have to reckon with whether those things align with each other. They had mediators called priests, and they would erect this tent called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this outer courtyard and then inside of that outer courtyard was this ornate tent. And wherever they went, they erected the tabernacle. And its design is full of symbolism. So to interact with this tabernacle was to embody movement toward God, both, both literally and figuratively. The sense that God's presence is there, but they're also doing these acts that help them recognize, am I reconciled to God? And it's not that different than how we go through a liturgy every week in our bulletin where we start with this call to worship. We're here. We're here to be with God. But then right away we think, but I don't feel great about that. I don't feel like I'm ready to talk to God. So I'm going to confess my sin. And then out of that, we receive this assurance and then we praise him. That, that's how that's designed. And the tabernacle is like an embodiment of that where you're going through these, these stages with these priests and, and you're thinking, hmm, as I move farther or closer to the, to the tabernacle, I wonder, could I approach God? <laughs> Am I in a place where I feel like I could approach God? It, it forces you to think about things. So if you were part of the wandering people of God, you could go into the courtyard and wash yourself as a way of asking for cleansing from God. And you could burn something as an offering to God. And you would interact with priests who could get closer to God by going past the first curtain. 
and enter the tabernacle's holy place, this room inside of the tent. And then once a year, the high priest would enter the place that's called the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God would appear and reveal himself to this high priest. And in this drama, it's really important to note that the people are real. This isn't just a play. The people are real, and God is real. It's just this, this theater of the tabernacle is a way of embodying the, the reality that there's separation between God and his people. There's a, there's a figurative curtain, and the literal curtain is helping them see that. It's, it's playful and figurative, and, uh, and it, it's meaningful. For the Israelites, it's embodying for them now something that humans long for, which is reconciliation and restoration of a perfect ideal relationship with God. One scholar that I read put it this way, our lives, as in us, the church, are being translated into this drama because it concerns the whole of creation whose story is at its end. Because Jesus, the son, is the hinge on which everything turns. These acts of spiritual theater, they're not, they're not bad. You may have heard them described as bad. It's not bad. They're just not effective. They're just the start of recognizing that we're separated from God. They point us to the separation. That's what the tabernacle does. It makes us long for fuller redemption, but it definitely doesn't accomplish it. And neither does the priestly system or any of the sacrifices of the law. If you remember last week, we talked about priests, and we described them as someone who takes on someone else's struggle and liability and, and, uh, and puts it on themselves to free them from it. They listen, they go to pray, and they offer sacrifices for people. And I know that offering sacrifices is hard to relate to because that sort of religion is so foreign to us. But you can relate to the idea of, of wanting to make up for a deficit in a relationship, right? Uh, if you're in a relationship and you feel like you've been inadequate, you desire to reconnect with your friend or your, uh, you know, someone you're dating or your spouse, uh, you want to close that gap by, by offering something to say, you know, I, I want to be reconnected to you. And that's what priests did for Israel. The people of Israel struggled to enjoy God's presence, even though he offered it to them. And they could come back time and time again and ask for forgiveness and make that offering as a sort of a sign that they want that. And the priest could counsel them and, and carry that out for them. And again, these sacrifices, they weren't, they weren't wrong, but they weren't effective in encouraging people to come, or they, or they were effective in encouraging people to come back to God, but they weren't sufficient. They don't, they don't solve the chasm between humans and God. That's what Hebrews 8, 1 through 6 is saying. That priests can bring sacrifice to God as little acts of theater to show they want to reconcile. They're like a gift given to restore something. But they're, they're just like flowers for a disillusioned lover. You know, they, they show that reconciliation is desired, but they don't deal with the core issues that, that need to be dealt with to, to bring the relationship back together. When I was 25, I was dating my wife, Erin, and she got into graduate school, and I was starting over. I lost my job, and I was trying to figure out my life. I was insecure, and I was emotionally volatile, and because I was wrestling with my identity, uh, I had a really hard time with the fact that it seemed like she had everything figured out. 
So I did what any melancholy poetry major type would do when she moved to Boston. I moved to San Diego. Uh, and I couch surfed until I found a beachside shack to live with two other guys. And uh, we had a really leaky roof. And I realized this, is, this probably isn't the uh, best this isn't the best roommate situation I could have. I think I may have just squandered a better one. Um, when I realized my mistake and that I wanted to marry Erin, I sent overtures of, a, of affection to her. You know, I sent her letters and flowers, and uh, her dad loved coffee, and I worked for Starbucks, so I would send him bags of coffee every week because I'd get a free bag, and I would pay about the same as it would cost to buy it in postage to send it to him. These were gestures of reconciliation. Right? And they're not worthless. But you wouldn't say to Aaron, I think you should marry this guy because of the coffee and the letters. He's obviously sorted out all of his emotional baggage. Right? Throughout human history, God has shown himself to his people through nature, through prophets, through scripture. But we can't see him clearly despite that. And the reason is not because of God. It's because the world was broken by us, by our race. Adam and Eve were given the chance to live in, in the wisdom of God, with him as their provider, him as their teacher, him as their friend. It was intended as a relationship where he would give them everything good and perfect, including knowledge and wisdom through him. But they chose to find knowledge outside of him. They chose to find their satisfaction outside of him. They chose to find their validation outside of God. And we live in that environment. That vapor has been released. And it's in our atmosphere. We can't but breathe and see and dream and think in a clouded way because of Adam and Eve's choice. I mean, clouded is, that's a... It helps with the vapor, but that's, that's an understatement. The consequences of the fall is a world saturated with disordered loves. Disordered loves is a, is a shorthand that people use to describe the thinking of uh, Augustine, great theologian. He puts it this way. One who does not love believes in vain, even if the things he believes are true. He hopes in vain even if the things for which he hopes are those which, according to our teaching, belong to true happiness. What we love, what we desire, what we long for, our affections are disordered because of the fall. Our minds might believe God, but our hearts still crave things that don't satisfy. And we wander toward fleeting pas passions, whether it's attention, or success, or lust, or stuff. Blaise Pascal puts it this way, the mind naturally believes and the will naturally loves. So that when there are no true objects for them, they necessarily become attached to false ones. In other words, our minds want to believe things. Our heart is full of desires. The question is, what are we really hungry to believe and worship and desire? Our desires, that's, that's where our true faith lies. We might have a bunch of faith knowledge, and it might be quite correct. 
Adam and Eve knew God very intimately. The Israelites had a pretty accurate understanding of God, far better than the nations surrounding them. But their desires were still disordered. They wanted to find satisfaction in their own desires. In their, uh, they, they wanted to have an identity where they built things to their own constructs. They wanted to live their way, and so they did. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and the Israelites lived however they wanted under the rule of human judges. They wanted to worship their own conceptions, so they made the golden calf. They wanted the status of having an earthly king, so they begged for a human monarchy. Their affections were not healthy, and neither are ours. We might believe in God, but that doesn't mean that our heart and our mind really desire to know him. We are very capable of, of lying to ourselves. We've talked about that a number of times through Hebrews. Instead of finding our satisfaction in God providing for us, we love to consume things that we don't need. Instead of identifying as a child of God, we beg to have people validate our identity. We may not be crafting a golden calf. We may not long for a monarchy. But we do release stress through materialism. And we find our identity in meritocracy. And those are idols. Idols are things that we love and desire and we point our affection toward instead of God. They're the opposite of priests. We were made to love the Lord our God. That's what it says throughout Scripture. And priests and the tabernacle and the law, they show us when we're loving other things. And they point us back to our loving creator. Idols, instead, they mediate for us to walk away from our loving creator. Loving God is to enjoy what he's given. And idolatry is to believe that... He's not provided for us to look for satisfaction elsewhere. Pornography is idolatry. It's also adultery. Just opening a bunch of tabs on your browser with clothes and housewares that you want to collect or Pinterest boards, that can be idolatry. Idolatry is if God's given you a spouse, but you like to flirt with other people. Idolatry is shopping on Amazon because you're bored and you want a box to show up on your porch to spark some joy or some temporary happiness. Idolatry is the lure of seeking recognition and approval from other humans. It's the bitterness of wanting different friendships. Idols can be things like a lust for the perfect home or just daydreaming for an easier life. Those are idols. They're disordered loves. Idolatry is worship. Uh, we like to worship ourselves, and we like to wor worship things that soothe us, but don't connect us to God. Contrast that with worship that leads us toward God. The priesthood and the tabernacle, as I've been saying, are not perfect. But they're forms of worship that help human loves become ordered. They cannot cure, but they can diagnose. You know, and, and here's some modern examples of what I think are priesthoods that contrast idolatry. Counseling is a priesthood. 
that helps us identify why we feel disordered. The Enneagram is a liturgy, it's a personality typing tool that helps us understand, and hear me say this, not underwrite, the unhealthy ways our personality copes with human existence. Mindfulness helps us pause and identify the disordered thoughts that animate our moods. Yoga might help us see where our bodies are misaligned. Coffee with a pastor to discuss our doubts or our hurts can help us process and release things that are pent up inside. These are priesthoods in the 21st century. Mindfulness, personality awareness, exercise, counseling, pastoral care. These are priesthoods. They're mediators of liturgical worship, able to diagnose our disorders. But they cannot accomplish the reset and transformation of our connection to God. Humans are discontent because our desires are disordered. And God calls us back to him. He keeps his promises. And throughout history, we've been trying to come back to him with these tokens of peace and repentance. His mercy all throughout has kept the relationship from completely dissolving. But until humans understand that we're responsible for the divide, it's going to remain. Whether it's the Levites or the tabernacle or pastors and counseling, these are shadows. They're replicas of a fuller, more complete, perfect transformation that Christ enacts. So here's the question. What would it take for us to have our love ordered? Our affection reset and our relationship to Christ transformed. Will it mean for God to keep being merciful? He has to remain there for us to come back to. But it also means that humans need to be fully perfected once again. In other words, something that we cannot do ourselves. There's a curtain, figuratively speaking, between us and God. And the tabernacle is this shadow helping us identify that distance. The law is a shadow. The priesthood is a shadow. They represent the negative space of this thing that we don't see. Christ, Hebrews is saying, is not another shadow. He is the light and the body which form the shadow. He is the perfect human. He is the ever-merciful God. He's God's love personified. And he's the human who gives his blood, the very force of life. Think about that. That's why blood is sacrificed. It's It's the very force of life. He takes his blood and he spills it as the sacrifice. So that not only has God remained faithful across time, but now a human has given everything to restore him, to restore us. A perfect human, perfect blood of the perfect life. Theologian Raymond Brown says this of this passage. Here's a clear word to any Christian in despondency or despair. We may feel crushed, dejected, bewildered, or broken. 
But our eternal salvation has never depended on our vacillating moods or our changing circumstances. Christ has entered the heavenly sanctuary. Once and for all, he offered his blood for us. There he has appeared for us, and now he is praying for us. We are ever remembered at the throne, and our names are enrolled in heaven. This is our confidence. Or to paraphrase Gerard Manley Hopkins, we've starved ourselves on sin, but instead of punishing us, he gave us his very blood to satisfy our hungers like bread, and his very blood to gladden our hearts like wine. And so when we come back to this table every week, we're not just remembering that Jesus died on the cross because he loved us. That is true. It was an act of of romantic love on behalf of his beloved. But it was also an actual payment of debt. It was his blood, the blood of God, spilled out to repair the breach on our behalf.